Good afternoon. So good to see many of you today. If you have your Bibles, please get ready to turn to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. In an essay titled Awakening from Nihilism, written in 1994, Nihilism, a philosophy which became popularized in the 20th century that rejects all religious and moral principles of objective truth, knowledge, morality, values, or any meaning, author and philosopher Michael Novak reflects on the turning of the century and the significance of truth. He writes, as we draw near the close of the 20th century, we owe ourselves a reckoning. This century was history's bloodiest, reflecting on the great wars. He continues, there's no guarantee that the 21st century will not be bloodier, and so the world should draw painful lessons from the ashes of the 20th century. One lesson is that even under conditions of nihilism, better than cowardice is fidelity to the truth. Another lesson, vulgar relativism. Relativism, the belief that there is no absolute truth, that truth is relative to one's own interpretation, undermines the culture of liberty. The 20th century had asserted the ideology that God is dead. But an age wrong about God is almost certainly to be wrong about man. In this dark night of the century, a first fundamental lesson was drawn from the bowels of nihilism itself. Truth matters. Truth matters. Truth is not merely subjective, not something we make up or choose, or cut today's fashions or the morrow's pragmatism. We obey truth. We do not have the truth. Truth owns us. Truth possesses us. Truth is far larger and deeper than we are. Close quote. Hence, in our passage this afternoon, Pilate asks the all-important question he himself is not ready to answer, but it's a question every single one of us should carefully consider because the way in which we come to terms with this very question has made all the difference. And for some of you, how you answer this question will make all the difference. Liberty or slavery, life or death, temporal reality or eternity. The question, of course, is what is truth? Our passage confronts us to answer that very question this afternoon. We're continuing our study through the gospel according to John in our series, In the Beginning Was the Word. And this fall, we're looking to finish the book with part three of our series, Sufferings and Glory, looking at chapters 18 through 21. Three weeks ago, we learned about four hopeful ironies regarding Jesus' betrayal from John chapter 18, verses 1 through 27, and I shared, Jesus was betrayed, yet his divinity was confirmed. Jesus was bound, yet he is sovereignly in control. Jesus was falsely accused, yet his death was predestined. And Jesus was denied, yet his promises are fulfilled. Today in our passage, Jesus continues to be led by the Jewish religious leaders toward his death in a series of wrongful trials. Yet what we see in our passage are profound truths of who Jesus is, even in his darkest moments, even as Jesus is denied repeatedly by his own people. And I believe central to the passage is Pilate's question, which stands out so prominently, what is truth? The passage answers this question clearly. So from our passage, I want to share with you three answers to the question which affects us greatly. Here's the outline so you can follow. What is truth? Point number one, 
Jesus is the true righteousness. Jesus is the true righteousness from verses 28 through 32. Point number two, Jesus is the true king from verses 33 through the first part of 38. Jesus is the true king. And point number three, Jesus is the true Passover from verses 38b to 40. Brothers and sisters, I pray this message will remind you anew that even in the midst of your dark and difficult days, that Jesus is the answer you can cling to and hope in. Amen? Jesus is the answer you need. And guests and visitors, if you are here and you are not a Christian or are not sure that you are, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. We've been praying for you. Scripture says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And we pray the truth of Jesus will set you free today. So listen to these words carefully. We pray that you will come to know Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to God. So without further ado, let's turn to our passage, which will be found on page 904 and 905 in the blue Bibles around you. I want to encourage you to please keep your Bibles open for the entire duration of the message as I read and preach so that you won't get bored and that you know what I say is from God's Word. John chapter 18, verses 28 through 40 says this. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusations do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say this to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. The first answer to the question, what is truth? Point number one, Jesus is the true righteousness from verses 28 through 32. Look with me again to verse 28. It says this. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. The first observation we can make from this passage is the blatant irony of the Jewish religious leader's false piety. The author of this gospel, John, excludes the graphic details recorded in the other synoptic gospels, the gospels according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, We're spared of the sheer brutality and abuse of the high priest and the mob that he had gathered around him, who were thirsty for blood, jealous and envious, feeling threatened by Jesus' growing popularity as a result of Jesus' signs and his sayings. Before Jesus was led to Pilate, the Roman governor, in the early morning, 
The other Gospels record how the Jewish leaders through the night spat on Jesus' face, how they blindfolded him and struck him numerous times, how they slapped him and mocked him as a criminal. Think about that. These were the highly esteemed leaders of God's people. These were the teachers and the keepers of God's sacred laws. Yet how twisted and thoroughly morally bankrupt they showed themselves to be. Ruthless and bloodthirsty with no sense of righteousness or fairness nor an effort to seek justice whatsoever. And that's why their refusal to enter the governor's headquarters concerned that they would be defiled You see, if they entered a Gentile home according to their self-made extra-biblical ceremonial laws, which would render them unclean and unable to participate and eat the Passover, is so very obviously ironic and hypocritical and calloused because it serves as a picture of all who try to merit righteousness by their works, you see. J.C. Ryle observes, these hardened men were actually engaged in doing the wickedest act that mortal men ever did. They wanted to kill their own Messiah. Yet at the very same time, they were worried about being defiled and were very particular about the Passover. The irony is in order to eat the earthly Passover, the Jewish leaders gave up the opportunity of eating the heavenly Passover. In reflecting on the Jewish leaders, mere outward piety, another commentator says this, nothing is more common than for persons overzealous about rituals to be remiss about morals. The conscience of the unconverted man is a very curious part of their moral nature. While in some cases it becomes hard and seared and dead until it feels nothing, in other cases it becomes morbidly meticulous, legalistic about the lesser matters of religion. Isn't this so true? It's not uncommon to find people excessively particular about the observance of trifling forms and outward ceremonies while they are slaves of degrading sins and detestable immoralities. Robbers and murderers in some religions are extremely strict about confession and absolution and prayers to saints. Men who know they are wrong in one direction often struggle to make things right by excess of zeal in another direction. And that very zeal is their condemnation. And so J.C. Ryle again says, religion that makes a man neglect the weightier matters of daily holiness and separation from the world, and concentrate his whole attention on forms and sacraments and ceremonies and public services, is, to say the least, very suspicious. And this is what the Apostle Paul meant in Romans 10, chapter 2 through 3, when he said, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness." So, brothers and sisters, I wonder if this is true of you today. What a word of challenge and self-examination for any of us who think that our outward acts of religiosity can mask the true state of our hearts. Checking off the boxes of religious duties, coming to church every Sunday, showing up to community groups, even having your quiet times daily, talking like you know so much scripture and theology, quoting Bible verses on social media. It really means nothing, does it? If your heart is far from true righteousness. How does your piety reflect in your doxology, the way you worship God, the way you love God, the way you love His people? These religious leaders typify for us the true state of every man or woman engaging in any form of religious acts apart from Jesus, the true righteousness 
All of us are unrighteous apart from Christ. Amen? Scripture teaches us by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Scripture says all have fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, not even one. Simply no amount of works righteousness will ever merit God's righteousness. We can't get there by our works, you see. The point is clear, brothers and sisters, righteousness doesn't flow out from wicked hearts. Righteousness doesn't come from scriptural knowledge. Righteousness doesn't come from merely adherence to laws. Righteousness doesn't come from outward acts of morality and religion. Someone who does all the right things, even all the good things, even all the lawful things can actually be so far from the will and the heart of God. That's what these Jewish leaders are showing us in our passage. And that's why even the ceremony of the Jewish Passover was merely the shadow of the true Passover to come. The commemoration of the Passover was just a reminder of God's righteousness, not their own. That's why the spotless substitute lamb was slaughtered on Passover for its blood to cover the doorpost of their homes. It was a symbol of how the lamb's spilt blood would be the atonement for their iniquities. It was pointing to the true Passover lamb to come. We're going to talk more about it in point three. But for now, Paul says again in Romans 10 verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Brothers and sisters, Christ is the end. Christ is the point. Christ is the true righteousness. Amen? That's why the Jewish leaders were completely missing it. They were completely missing the mark. True righteousness was right before their eyes, yet their hearts were so far from Him. Their hearts were closed toward Him. They rejected Him. They denied Him. They wanted to kill Him. The next verses shows us just how far the Jewish leaders' commitment to their own self-righteousness will lead to. Look at verses 29 through 31. What's going on here is an interesting exchange between the Jewish leaders and the Pilate, the Roman governor. But I think you'll come to see there's much more that's going on. And a bit of background context helps make sense of this particular dialogue. So let me share with you just a little bit of context. You see, it's written about Pilate, that he was appointed by the Roman emperor Tiberius only because of his marriage to the granddaughter of the former emperor Augustus. It was known of Pilate that he was an ambitious opportunist. He was brutal, politically inept, and anti-Semitic. He was morally weak and a vacillating man who, like many of the same breed, tried to hide his flaws under shows of stubbornness and brutality. His administration of Judea was known for political mistakes, which revealed his character deficiencies. And several times in his governance, Pilate had foolishly upset the Jews and solicited protests, which were quelled savagely and rashly. In fact, in Luke 13:1, it's even written that he even mingled the blood of certain Galileans with their sacrifices, meaning he allowed the attacking of Jews even in the middle of their worship in the temple. And all of these remarkable series of incidents had not left Pilate in the good graces of Rome, nor in the good graces of the Jews. Hence, Pilate was a mere sitting duck, ready to appease the Jews in order to ensure the security of his post. Hence, the perfect storm, you see. The Jewish leader's baseless and excessive accusation and Pilate's flippant and indecisive accommodating verdict. When asked by Pilate in verse 29, what accusations do you bring against this man? The Jewish leaders can't even give him a straight answer. Look at verse 30. They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. See, previously they had accused Jesus of blasphemy, right? 
that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, which meant that he was equal with God. But they knew that blasphemy alone would not acquire the verdict they desired. The Jewish leaders wanted to kill Jesus, and that was the bottom line. That's why Pilate answers in verse 31, Take him yourself and judge him by your own law. But the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Which is interesting, right? Because if the accusation of blasphemy was indeed credible, Leviticus 24, 16 clearly states, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. But you see, they didn't want to stone him. That's the bottom line. They wanted to kill Jesus in the worst way possible. They wanted capital punishment, the worst form of death, death by crucifixion the Roman way. Do you see just how far self-righteousness goes to protect its own self-interest? All of a sudden, the accusation turns from blasphemy to treason, which was the only way the Roman government would render such judgment of crucifixion. But ask yourselves, was Jesus guilty of such crimes? Did Jesus really try to raise up an insurrection to overthrow the Jewish leadership in the Roman Empire by his teachings and by his miracles? It simply didn't make sense unless something bigger was going on, and it was. Verse 32 tells us this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show what kind of death he was going to die. This verse was referring to the numerous times when Jesus had predicted the way in which he himself would die by crucifixion, not by stoning. In John 3.14, Jesus had said, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In John 8.28, Jesus said, When you had lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. In John 12, verses 32 through 33, Jesus had said, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And this kind of death would be to fulfill the words of Deuteronomy chapter 21, 23, which speaks of this, a hanged man is cursed by God, which the Apostle Paul later says of it in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. You see, while the wickedness of man had everything to do with Jesus' death, on the other hand, the death of Jesus, even the kind of death he would die, had everything to do with God's divine design of redemption to rescue a people from their rebellion. Our unrighteousness for his righteousness, our sins for his salvation, our curse for his Christ. What is the truth? What is the truth? Christ is our true righteousness. We have no hope in any other. We have no life apart from him. Amen? Point number two, what is the truth? Jesus is the true king. Jesus is the true king from verses 33 through 38a. In these next verses, we see the exchange between Jesus and Pilate. And what we see is the great perplexity that Pilate finds himself in. This is illustrated, of course, by Pilate's constant going in and coming out, questioning and probing and then probing some more, attempting to find some sort of resolve. Ultimately, Pilate is convinced of Jesus' innocence. Three times in this section, Pilate says in John 18, 38, I find no guilt in him. In John 19, 4, I find no guilt in him. 
In John 19.6, I find no guilt in him. Yet as the vacillating man as he was, he succumbs to the will of the Jewish leaders to crucify Jesus even when he knew, even when he was convinced that Jesus was innocent. We're going to talk more about that soon. But so interesting, isn't it? Pilate quips in verse 38, what is truth? What is truth? Perhaps he was saying something like, why does the truth even matter? Perhaps his own struggle with power and authority and his own incapability made him question the legitimacy or the necessity of truth. Perhaps he's experienced the truth of Jeremiah 9, 5 in his own life. Everyone deceives his neighbor and no one speaks truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity. Maybe that was true of Pilate as it is for many of us today living in today's society. Maybe some of you are here asking the same question today. What is truth? It seems to carry no weight in our fast-changing and Instagram-filtered culture anyways. In this nastily divided society, whether by politics or race or whatever remnant of the pandemic, everyone is right in their own eyes. Everyone is so strongly opinionated. Everyone has their own die-hard opinions. And truth seems to be relative to whatever one determines for themselves. Why does the truth matter anyways? Well, Jesus teaches us why it matters in these verses. Here, another puzzling irony regarding the kingship of Jesus. But in understanding Jesus' kingship, he teaches us something more, something greater, something bigger. Look at verses 33 through 34. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say this to you about me? Pilate inquires whether Jesus is king because in order to serve Jesus, the verdict of treason, he has to prove that Jesus was a self-proclaimed king who was a threat to the Roman Empire. Jesus' answer is clear. Do you say this of your own accord? Is this what you heard about me from my teachings and from my works? Or did others say this to you? Is this your truth? Is this your reality? You see, Jesus flips the tables on Pilate. Instead of Jesus standing on trial in Pilate's court, Pilate is on trial in God's court. Jesus appeals to Pilate's conscience, yet Pilate reduces himself to haughtiness and arrogance. That's the question. What is truth anyways? What is truth? Look at verse 35. Pilate answers, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Pilate was saying, this case is beneath me. You are beneath me. I am a Roman. Your own nation, the nation of Israel, the chief priest, have delivered you over to me. I have the authority. I have the power. What have you done? What do you have to say? You're no king. You're no threat. You have no power here. But Jesus' response of his kingship is of an entirely different nature and order. Look at verse 36 and 37. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. A couple things you should take notice. First, in observing this passage, many readers wonder why Jesus never gives a straight answer to Pilate's question, are you the king of the Jews? Why couldn't Jesus just say, yeah, I am? Well, these verses shows us Jesus actually answered very clearly and repeatedly, even theologically accurately. Jesus was not a king of the Jews merely in the way Pilate understood kingship. Jesus says simply, clearly, my kingdom is not of this world. 
Jesus had no desire to be the king of the Jews, only in the way Pilate understood it. This was not the first time Jesus said it. In John 12, 27, Jesus had said, For this purpose I have come to this hour. John 16, 28, Jesus had said, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Jesus is a king. Yes, indeed. But his kingdom is not political or national or regional. Jesus' kingdom is heavenly and eternal. Hallelujah. This is why Jesus has no hesitation when he says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not have delivered over to the Jews. You might think, man, that's kind of embarrassing, right? But Jesus is not embarrassed whatsoever that all of his closest disciples, nor the thousands of crowds who followed him during his earthly ministry were nowhere present and scattered during these brutal and unjust trials. They were not yet the servants Jesus was referring to, you see. In Matthew 26, 53, Jesus had told the high priest, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? You see, it was not the lack of power nor authority. Jesus stood betrayed and denied by his own nation before unjust rulers. Jesus said it very clearly, My kingdom is not of this world. To this, Pilate is still confused. But can we blame him? Jesus had told Peter in Matthew 16, verses 17 through 19, the revelation of God's kingdom is not one of flesh and blood can reveal, but only what the Father who is in heaven can reveal. So you see in verse 37, Pilate trying to grasp what Jesus was saying. So are you, are you a king? Right? That's the quandary. That's the confusion. But the answer that he and we are given is the profound truth an unrivaled precious promise of comfort and hope for those who will hear it. Look at verse 37 again. Then Pilate said to him, So are you a king? Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. In this, verse 27, Jesus responds to Pilate's repeated question, So are you a king? Jesus answered, You say I am a king. Jesus was saying, The kind of king you think I am is not it. Rather, Jesus explains the purpose of why he came. D.A. Carson, a theologian, says of this verse, to be a king was the reason Jesus was born, the reason Jesus came into the world. Only here in this gospel is the birth of Jesus unambiguously mentioned. He came to be king. In other words, his incarnation, the divine and eternal Jesus becoming man, to live the sinless life, to die the substitute death on our behalf, his resurrection, his ascension would be the coronation of his eternal kingship. It is the manifestation of his glory. It is his bearing witness to the truth of God's word, to God's promises, to God's prophecies, and to God's covenants. But is that all? Was Jesus' kingdom the end all? Was that the goal? No, there is more. The reason why Jesus came to earth was to establish his eternal kingdom through testifying to the truth. Again, what is that truth? Truth is what Jesus tells us about God and eternity through his words and his works. So scripture teaches us, God the Father is the God of truth. And Jesus Christ is full of grace and truth. In fact, Jesus is the truth. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. The Bible is called the word of truth. Jesus prayed to God, your word is truth. So you see, everything about God is true. 
John Calvin, the theologian, says, nothing is deemed more precious by God than truth. And so we understand no one can be saved without truth, nor can anyone be sanctified or strengthened without truth. And that's why Jesus says, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So what was Jesus saying to Pilate and describing to him the nature and the purpose of his kingship? And what is he saying to us today? May those who have ears to hear today, this afternoon, hear his voice and see him truly as the glorious king. Amen? May you hear him and see him as the true king is the point. Not Caesar, not Biden, not any man of history or any man yet to be born of man but the only one who came from heaven who is the very true word of God. Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah. Hebrew 1, 1 through 2 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Praise the Lord, brothers and sisters. God has spoken to you and me of His truth through His Son, Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord, brothers and sisters. He has given you and me ears to hear His truth. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Even as Jesus is denied, he bears witness to the truth. He invites Pilate to listen. He invites us to listen. He invites us to his kingdom. If you are here and you are not a Christian, notice carefully the response of Pilate in the first part of verse 38. Pilate is pressed into a spiritual dilemma, you see. You'll notice Pilate asks the question but doesn't really want an answer. He proves himself to not be one who listens to the truth. And may he serve as a lesson to you. J.C. Ryle, again, says there are multitudes in every land whose state of mind is just like that of Pilate. Hundreds, it may be feared, are continually excusing their own irreligion by the deceptive excuse that they cannot find out what is the truth. They point to the endless controversies of culture and theological debates. They pretend to say they do not understand who is right and who is wrong. Sheltered under this favored excuse, they pass through life without any decided religions. And in this wretched, comfortless state, too often they die. But is it really true that truth cannot be discovered? Nothing of the kind. God never left any honest, diligent inquirer without light and guidance. Pride is one reason why many cannot discover truth. They do not humbly go down on their knees and earnestly ask God to teach them. Laziness is another reason. They do not honestly take pains and search the scriptures. They follow the followers of unhappy Pilate. Do not deal fairly and honestly with their consciences, you see. Their favorite question, what is truth? What is truth with their hands lifted up, you know, as they're giving up, is nothing better than a pretense, an excuse. The words of Proverbs 2, verse 4 and 5 will be found true as long as the word stands. If you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. No man ever followed that advice and missed the way to heaven. Close quote. So if you are here and you are not a believer of Jesus, are you listening? Jesus is speaking to you. Jesus invites you. Jesus is the only true king, eternal 
and glorious, worthy of all of our worship and loyalty for all our days. He alone gave us his life and is all for us, which leads us to our final and much shorter point. What is truth? Point number three, Jesus is the true Passover from verses 38b to verse 40. Look at the second part of verse 38 through 40 again. It says this, and after he has said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Pilate had no ears to hear the truth of Jesus' invitation. He has no response. Yet what he does determine shows by his verdict. I find no guilt in him. The first of three times he says this. You see, Pilate understood Jesus' answer well enough to grasp that Jesus was not the type of king in any merely political sense, a king who might endanger the empire. Simply, Pilate did not see Jesus guilty of treason. And if Pilate had been a man of integrity, his verdict would have ended the matter. Jesus would have been released. And the Jewish leaders dismissed, simple as that, overdone. But for whatever reason, to help the Jewish leaders save face, to save his own skin because he was receiving threats, to embarrass the Jewish leaders before the crowds, thinking that they would indeed want Jesus to be released, Pilate offers to release Jesus in accordance with the custom at Passover. But again, we see this great irony, don't we? An innocent man is held captive to a cruel crucifixion while Barabbas, a well-known robber and an insurrectionist and a murderer, somebody who is truly guilty of the punishment that Jesus was being charged with, according to Mark 15, 7, is set free. What an irony. If anyone was a true threat to the empire, it was Barabbas, but he goes free. One theologian comments on this obvious irony. Barabbas' name was actually Jesus Barabbas, meaning Jesus, a son of a father. And the crowd's choice was clear. They chose Jesus, a son of a father, instead of Jesus, the son of the father. What a symbolism of man's willingness to resort to murder and depraved deception while rejecting the true spiritual king. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we would see the important lesson of this passage the truth of our spiritual condition, that we don't see truth, that we don't seek truth, that we don't know truth, that we don't choose truth before Christ, the truth, came to us. And that is exactly why Jesus had to become the true Passover lamb, the innocent, blameless, and spotless lamb of God. You see, when John the Baptist proclaimed at his first sight of Jesus, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, for our sake, God made him who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the best news you will ever hear. That God had a plan from the very beginning to redeem rebellious sinners who rejected his word, who rebelled against his truth. Though we rightly deserved eternal separation and condemnation and judgment since God is a righteous judge, his divine plan from before the foundation of the world was to send his son Jesus, truly God, truly man, to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we should have died, and he suffered the punishment we would have suffered in eternal hell. Jesus became the Passover lamb, the perfect sacrifice once and for all, that all who would be covered by his spilt blood may find forgiveness, atonement, and a right relationship with God.
Simply, his life paid the price for our sins. His death propitiated or fulfilled the sentence of our sins. As Isaiah 53 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. How so? How so? Because Jesus did not stay dead. On the third day, Jesus rose again back to life, which meant that Jesus conquered sin, Satan, and death once and for all. And whosoever, anyone and everyone who would repent and believe and trust in him will live the new and abundant life here now today. And upon his glorious return, live the eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth forever with him and all his people. So friend and visitors, if you are here and you are not a Christian, do you want to know the truth? Don't go searching in the world for truth. They don't know. Don't go searching in history for truth. They will fail you. There is only one man in history who claimed, I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The world put him to death, but death couldn't stop him. The grave couldn't hold him. He is alive today, hallelujah, reigning as the king of the universe. This local church is a small part of his kingdom, which is a part of the larger church throughout the 2,000 years of Christian history all around the world. We are his people. We are his witnesses. We are ones who believe in his every word. We testify that Jesus is our true righteousness, that Jesus is our true king. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, repent of your sins today. Believe that Jesus died and rose again for you. Trust in him with your whole life today and tomorrow and forevermore. Do not waver any longer in questioning and asking what truth is. Here is truth. Jesus is truth. Believe and repent and accept him and trust him today. Talk to any of the pastors at the door at the close of service. We'd be happy to talk to you. Or talk to anybody smiling next to you at the close of service. We would be more than happy to talk to you about how you can believe and follow Jesus. Dear brothers and sisters, as I conclude, I want to share with you 1 Corinthians 5, 7 and 8, which says this. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. This means live like born-again Christians that you really are. You have Jesus' righteousness. You serve Jesus, the King of kings. And the verse continues. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In other words, don't be like the Jewish leaders, clean on the outside, but rotten on the inside. But we, as the born-again people of God, worship the Lord, honor the Lord, live our lives in sincerity and in truth, to love Him, to serve Him, to trust in Him and to love others, and to serve others, and point others to Christ and His truths. May you be encouraged and stand firm in the words of our final hymn, brothers and sisters. Afflicted saints to Christ draw near, your Savior, gracious promise here. His faithful word you can believe, that as your days your strength shall be. So sing with joy, afflicted one. The battle's fierce, but the victory's won. God will supply all that you need. Yes, as your days, your strength will be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you and honor you that for this purpose you came into the world to bear witness about the truth of God. 
Father, aside from you coming, apart from you coming, we would be abandoned in our confusion, seeking truth in history, seeking truth in philosophy, seeking truth in man who will disappoint. But Father, you have not disappointed us. You have come and spoke to us powerfully. You gave us ears to hear and eyes to see and new hearts to understand your truth. If there's anyone here who do not know you, may you speak to them and may they call out to you. For your word says, whoever will call on me will be saved. Father, we praise you today that you are the God who has come, that you are our true righteousness, that you are the true king, that you are our Passover lamb who covers all of our sins. We praise you and honor you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.